Good morning, everybody. <laughs> hey, uh, welcome to Faith. My name is Mike. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. Thanks for being with us in person today. Thanks for being with us online today. As uh, we are just continuing in a series that we've entitled Says Who? Uh, in this series, we're, we're, we're making the argument that there's really such a thing as right and wrong. That when it comes to like, who has the right to tell you what to do with your life? Uh, it's God. And that God has actually done that, that he's revealed truth to us for our lives in the Bible. Uh, but that begs the question of, okay, how do I know if I'm getting it right? Like, are there, are, there, are there right ways and wrong ways to read this book? Are there ways in which I can read this book that better help me understand what God is communicating to me in it than, than not? And we're saying there absolutely are. And so each week in this series... We are taking a different type of literature from the Bible. There are 10 different types. And each week we're going, all right, how do I read this well? What are some principles? What are some best practices for reading this well? What are some challenges that can get in between me and reading this well? And as we continue this week, we are looking at Old Testament prophets. Who's excited? <laughs> uh -huh. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Now, Old Testament prophets, you get about 17 of them written by, you know, uh, 16 different authors. They, they actually take up some real estate. About a third of your Old Testament are these guys. But just stop and think. What comes to mind when you think of prophets? Yeah, maybe somebody like this guy, right? Okay, you know, just, you know, some bushy-bearded, wild-eyed, Bible-thumping, angry, apocalyptic, ranting kind of maniac, right? Yeah, so um, here's the good news. While prophets have some of those characteristics, they are actually incredibly relevant to our lives. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some of the challenges that come with reading the Old Testament prophets. We're going to look at um, why we would read them anyway, and then some of the best practices for reading them. So let's take a minute and pray. Get Matt off the screen, because that's all you're paying attention to right now, and then we'll dive in. Father, we just thank you for your truth for our lives in spite of some of the, the nuances, some of the challenges that come with reading it, just how relevant it can be to our world. As we take time and um, go back and, and look at some ancient, ancient Hebrew literature, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, you would speak to our minds. If there are things that we personally need to hear, I pray that we would be open to that. I pray you would draw us to yourself in the midst of this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So challenges. Old Testament prophets, they come with challenges. Um, one of them is just like the role of the prophet. Most people, when they think of, of prophets, they think of people who predict the future. You know, prophets foretell the future. Here's the interesting thing. You read the Old Testament prophets, and I don't know why you'd want to keep track of this, but if you kept track, right, you'd, you'd discover that about 2% of what they have to say has to deal with the Messiah. About 5% of what they have to say has to deal with the future coming kingdom. Like, really, very little is about predicting. The prophets actually are a whole lot more about proclamation than they are prediction. 
See, the prophets, they're covenant enforcers. In fact, look at your neighbor and tell them, enforcer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's, here's what we mean by this. The, the Old Testament, really, what, what you have going on there is a covenant that takes place between the nation of Israel and God. In the first five books of the Old Testament, it spells that covenant out. This is what it means to be my people. This is what it means that I'll be your God. This is what you're going to do as my people. This is what I'll do as your God. And in the first five books of the Old Testament, God spells out very clearly how he'll bless them if they live into that covenant and how he's going to judge them if they don't. And then in those first five books, and then again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish people as a nation are like, sign us up. We're in. We get it. We're we're down with this. And what you have in the prophets is the prophets are proclaiming to the nation of Israel, hey, here are all the ways you are out of alignment with the covenant that you agreed to, and this is what God's going to do if you don't fly straight. And so one of the challenges is just understanding the role of a prophet. But even when, you, even when you do understand the role of the prophet, it can still make things a little bit difficult. Like to understand the role prophet properly makes things difficult. Because if I understand th- these are books that the prophets are writing to ancient Israel, I kind of realize to some degree these aren't books for me. Because I'm not an ancient Israelite. I'm not, I wasn't called to live in a theocracy where I obey the Old Testament laws that's revealed in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so it, it can leave me starting to wonder, well, is there anything like for me in this stuff? And then on top of that, it doesn't help that they're old, right? They're like, the, the prophetic books are like 2,500 years old and more. And as old books, they assume that they have all kinds of history, and, and that history is assumed to be understood by the reader because the reader's living it, right? But because it's 2,500 years old, we're not living it. And you get all this old stuff and you're like, again, how can something that old have anything to do with my life today? And then on top of that, the prophets use these different literary tools. They use things like poetry, which the first poetry I was ever exposed to was Walt Whitman, and I have hated poetry ever since, right? I'm just done with it, right? So you got poetry, you got symbols in there, which are weird, and then you've got this thing called demonstration. And so you'll read stuff in the prophets, and you're like, I don't get what they're doing, and that seems really strange. And then you read other stuff that's just flat out disturbing in what they're doing. And again, you, you deal with all this, and you're like, a third of my Old Testament is this stuff like, why would I bother reading this? Why would I bother with these guys? And that's, that's where I want to spend the lion's share of our time today because there's actually some really good reasons for why we would read these books, even with the challenges that they present. And here's the primary one. The prophets give us a window into the heart of God. When you read these books, you see God's heart in a way that you just don't see it anywhere else. The prophets will talk about sin and, and how God feels about sin and what sin does to God. The prophets will talk about God's passion for repentance and forgiveness. And they will talk about what God has done to make that kind of restoration accessible to people. And again, they do so in ways 
even though I don't like poetry and, and the demonstration thing is weird and the symbols are difficult to understand, when you begin to wrap your brain around some of that stuff, you see God's heart and you understand what God is feeling about these things in ways you just don't anywhere else. And so today we're going to kind of spend some time looking at these items and we're going to do so with a prophet named Hosea. Now, again, to, to, it can be helpful to take some time and understand some of that history, because when you understand some of that history, it helps you understand what these guys are talking about. So Hosea, he prophesied roughly 8th century BC, right? And he prophesies during the reign of a guy named Jeroboam II. Now, you're like, who's Jeroboam II? Why do I care about that? It's, it's actually relevant to some of the things that Hosea is going to talk about. Jeroboam II, he prophesies during what's known as the divided kingdom for Israel. So at one point, you know, you got one country, 12 tribes under God, right? And um, then they have a little bit of a civil war, and they wind up with two countries. And you got the northern 10 tribes, and they get to keep the name Israel. You got the southern two tribes, they go by the name of Judah. And oftentimes, Hosea is going to speak to Israel. He'll call them Ephraim at times, really pretty frequently. He talks to both, but he primarily talks to Israel. And he does so again during the 8th century BC, which is a uniquely dangerous time for the nation of Israel. So here's what you have going on. You have the superpower Syria has fallen out of power. The superpower Assyria has yet to have risen to power. And so you have kind of like this power vacuum in the Middle East, and Israel under Jeroboam II fill it. During his reign, they have the most powerful military in the whole area. They expand their borders to, to places they hadn't known since David or Solomon sat on the throne. The economy is just rocking right? GDP are up. Wages are up. Unemployment is down. Inflation is down. They are the economic pace setter for the entire area. Now, you may sit there and think, I thought you said it was a dangerous time for them. I did. And I get how those things sound good, but here's what you need to understand. Anytime a country is doing well militarily and, and as far as the territory goes and as far as the economy goes, there's always a corresponding danger that goes with that. It's the danger of prosperity. We like prosperity. I like prosperity. But there's a danger that comes with prosperity. And the danger of prosperity is that people will experience that and then they'll forget about God. And that's what the Israelites did. They had, they had all kinds of prosperity in their economy, their military, just everything's going great. And it caused them to forget about the God who got them there. Hosea writes about this. It's one of the first sins he starts to point out. He says, but I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me no savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness and the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. Hosea's like, hey, you're in Egypt. Things are a mess. You're desperate for God then. 
You're, in the, you're, you're wandering for, in the wilderness for four decades plus just trying to figure out how we're going to eat and have clothes and live indoors. You, were, you, were, you needed me then. But then you got to the promised land and all your needs were met. And you kind of got full of yourselves. And then you just kind of forgot about me. And yeah, you were doing well as far as, you know, like your physical needs and your, your economic needs. But spiritually, you slid into this place where you, progressively you became bankrupt. Now again, this is 2,800 years old, but I would contend there's some relevance for our lives in this. I mean, just stop and think. You ever known somebody who like when... They'd made decisions in, in their life. It's just blowing up, and they're like desperate for God. Have you ever known somebody who, like, when, when things are not going well financially, they're, they're, they're like, hey, I need some Jesus in my life to provide for me. But then they kind of figured some things out in their world and got a decent job, and they've got a decent, you know, they got a roof over the head and food on the table and clothes on the back, and they've even got money to spare in the bank, and all of a sudden, they, they forget about the God who got them there. And they start to slide back into some of the things that made them desperate for God in the first place. But all that, all that prosperity that they're experiencing now, it actually serves to make them numb to the fact that they are becoming spiritually bankrupt. See, that's where the Israelites are at. They, they, they are, we're going to see Hosea point some things out, and they've just slidden back into some really ugly things, but everything is going so well as far as the nation is concerned, as far as the money is concerned. They're just numb now to the fact that they're dying spiritually on the inside. So Hosea comes along, and again, he's the covenant enforcer, so he starts proclaiming where they're out of alignment with what they told God they would do. He starts off with this. He says, there's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing and lying and murder and stealing and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. He's like, listen, how you treat each other matters to me. It's part of why I gave you the Ten Commandments, which, incidentally, every one of these things is a violation of the Ten Commandments. He's like, listen, I gave you that because how you act as my redeemed covenant people matters. How you treat one another matters, and you've completely lost sight of that. Yeah, you got money in the bank, but you treat each other miserably. That's not enough. Hosea, he goes after politics next. He says, they set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. He's like, listen, the people you are picking as leaders, you're picking them as leaders, not because I want you to pick them as leaders, but you want them as leaders. And he's like, not only you replace my leaders with your leaders, but you replace me with false gods. And the false gods that the Israelites turned to took them to some really dark kind of places. And again, Hosea, he's going to put his finger on that. He says next, he says, my people consult a wooden idol. 
And a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak and poplar and terebinth where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughter-in-laws to adultery. Now, here's what you have going on here. The Israelites, before they move into the promised land, you have the Canaanites who are living there. And there, there are a number of things that are just staples of the Canaanite religion that are really ugly. And this is one of them. It's cult prostitution. So here's how cult prostitution works. Part of going to church is you go into the building, you find a prostitute, and you have sex with that person, and that's church. And the idea is there's some deity watching all the fertility taking place at church who's in turn going to make sure that fertility gets transferred to your fields and to your livestock. You're like, that's crazy. Yeah. Got men to come to church, show. Just saying. Right? Here's the deal, though. What this does is it reduces spirituality to something that is there to justify whatever my particular sexual desire is. Instead of spirituality being something that inspires me to submit my sexuality to an authority higher than myself. Let me say that again, because that sounds familiar to me. Spirituality is reduced to something that's there to justify whatever sexual desire I may have. Rather than spirituality is something that is going to inspire me to submit my sexuality to an authority higher than me. Hosea doesn't stop. Next he says, now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of these people, they offer human sacrifice, they kiss calf idols. Now again, this is in reference to a Canaanite religious practice that the Israelites have slidden into. And with it, you get this raging fire going. You take your infant child, you place it in the raging fire, and you leave it there to burn to death. And the idea is there's another deity watching this happen, and this this act placates that deity, and that deity will bless my life in ways that I desire. And so what you have happening here is you have parents who are willing to sacrifice the life of their child to secure a better future for themselves. Again, I I would contend, you you, you have stuff that's thousands of years old, and yet it still speaks to issues that are relevant to our world today. This is what the prophets do. The prophets reveal to us what God would call sin. And then the prophets talk to us about how God feels about it. But the prophets do so in a way that might surprise you. Because so often, I'll hear people, they'll be like, man, that God of the Old Testament, he's mad about sin. Like, look out for that God of the Old Testament. He's going to get you. He's going to smite you. He's going to judge you. I like the God of the New Testament better. He's a God of love. That God of the Old Testament, he's just a God of wrath. And 
Hosea speaks to that. But he does so in a way that's so much richer and so much deeper than just pigeonholing God to this one attribute. Hosea, he'll speak to this whole thing and he'll talk about his people's sin and he'll compare it to marriage. He's like, hey, my relationship with my people, this is like a marriage. And their sin, it's, it's kind of like spiritual unfaithfulness. It's like spiritual adultery. This, this, is, this is how I feel about sin. God will say through Hosea. And then God does this. Remember we talked about one of the tools of the prophet is demonstration. God does this with Hosea. We read about it right at the beginning of the book. Chapter 1. God says this to Hosea. He says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer. Here's what you have going on here. Hosea isn't just going to be so lucky as to proclaim, hey, here's what's going on between God and his people. Hosea is going to get to demonstrate, here's what's going on between God and his people. So God says, hey, I want you to go marry a promiscuous woman. In other words, Hosea, I want you to marry a girl who you know is going to get caught up into the cult prostitution that's rampant in the culture right now. Now, scholars will argue, did, you know, was Gomer involved in prostitution, got married to Homer, and, or got married to Hosea, and then, then went back you know, to prostitution? Or they'll argue, no, 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 she, she wasn't involved in that, they got married, and then she went to it. I really don't know that matters that much as a husband, right? Like, either way, he's, he's, he's being told by God, you go marry a girl who you know is going to not just run out on you, but she's going to run out on you and become a prostitute. Who wants to be a prophet now? I'm like, this is messed up stuff. But this is what Hosea does. He marries Gomer. He has three kids with her. And sure enough, he gets up one morning and she's gone. He is left to be a single dad because the woman who promised to share this with him and him alone is now willing to share it with anybody who will pay the right price. Now, have you ever sat with someone when they got the news that their spouse had gone out on them or their spouse was currently cheating on them? Like if, if you've ever been part of that conversation, you know just how just, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. And when you're talking to that person, is there anger there? Absolutely. But if you've taken the time to really sit with someone in the midst of that, you know there's so much more than that. There's this, this pain, this woundedness, this deep hurt. There's a sense of betrayal. There's, there's a mourning that takes place there 
over what could and should have been relationally. Oftentimes, what looks like on the surface to be just anger, beneath the surface, it is a person who is relationally devastated over what has taken place. God says to Hosea, you're going to go marry Gomer, and she's going to be unfaithful to you. And you're going to do this so that you can demonstrate to everyone who sees what's happening in your relationship with her, what's happening in my relationship with my people. Everybody who sees what you're going through and has any kind of sense to understand what you are feeling right now, they're going to know. That's exactly how I feel when my people are unfaithful to me. Is God angry about sin? Sure. But it's so much deeper than that. Hosea is there to help us understand that when God's people sin, there's a deep sense of pain and woundedness that comes with that. There's a sense of betrayal. There's a, there's a, there's a mourning over what the relationship could and should be. God isn't just angry about his people's sin. Hosea is there to help us understand that on an emotional level, God is devastated by what has taken place. Hosea, he then tells us how God responds. And there are two primary responses on God's part. The first one is judgment. You read the book of Hosea, and like again and again and again and again, God's like, listen, we had a covenant. We all understood how this would work. If you don't stop, these are the things that are going to happen to you. But these are only the things that are going to happen to you if you choose to pursue this course that you've been on. And then God does something unthinkable next. First response is judgment. The second response is to call his people to repentance and offer forgiveness. When one spouse goes out on the other, and I, I've sat there with so many people where that's where they're at, the, the most common reaction is to be done. That, that's a line you have crossed. We cannot come back from this. And I've even seen some spouses, and this isn't healthy, but it's, it's not uncommon, where they now look for to celebrate the fall from grace that they hope the spouse who, who has done this to them is going to experience at some point. That's not what God does. In Hosea, we see a God who longs to be reconciled to his people, even though they've run out on him. He'll say things to them like, return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. And God tells him, if you will, he says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger is turned away from them. See, this is the God of the Old Testament. It's not just a God who's out to like 
smite people. If sin is there, he's going to address it. He's not going to sweep it under the rug. He's not going to ignore it. But he is a God who longs to be reconciled to people who have wounded him. A God who's forever saying, hey, return. Forgiveness is right here. And not only is he offering forgiveness to his people, but he is willing to pay the price to make that forgiveness possible. And again, lucky Hosea gets to demonstrate that too. In chapter 3, Gomer's out there doing her thing. God says to Hosea, go show your love to your wife. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lecketh of barley. I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same towards you. Hosea goes looking for Gomer, and he finds her being sold on the auction block. We don't know how long she was working as a prostitute, but it appears to be it was long enough that she's no longer commanding a price. Long enough that she's gotten desperate to try and meet her needs and it's gotten into all kinds of debt. Long enough that, that life has gotten so bad she is now being sold into indentured servitude. The sin that promised to set her free is now enslaved her. And so Hosea goes. He goes there with his own cash, with his own produce, and he buys Gomer back. This woman who walked out on him, this woman who left him alone with the kids, this woman who turned to a life of prostitution, he buys her back at his own expense, brings her back into his home, and extends an offer of covenant relationship with her again. And he does so to demonstrate this is who God is. This is what God is doing with his people. See, Hosea is a picture of the gospel. The, the, the story of humanity is a story of a people who have lived as spiritual adulterers. We, we walked out on God. We were convinced God's out to ruin our fun. God's you know, trying to just keep us pinned under his thumb. We're, we're going to chase after our lovers. We're going to chase after whatever form of sin we might want to. And when the sin that left, you know, the sin that promised to set us free enslaved us, when, when the sin that promised to make us whole left us broken, when we realized we are powerless to fix this ourselves, God came looking for us when he had every right to leave us where we were, every right to celebrate our demise, God came looking for us. He actively sought us out. And when he found us, he bought us back at his expense. 
God's not shelling out, you know, silver and barley. What, what does John tell us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God is redeeming us in the best that heaven has to offer. The blood of Jesus. Paul says it this way. He says, for God made Christ, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. When we walked out, when we pursued our sin, when God had every right to be done with us, at his own expense, God offered the best that could be offered to bring us back. See, again, this is the God of the Old Testament. He is a God who's he's going to address sin, yes. But he is a God who is passionate about repentance and forgiveness and who's willing to do anything to make restoration possible. And so that's why we read the Old Testament prophets. Because we see the heart of God there. And so as you read them, be aware of the challenges. But I, w- I would encourage you, use the challenges to recognize the tools to help you read them well. You know, so is, is there a bunch of history there? Yeah, there sure is. Take time. Pick up a Bible dictionary. Get a commentary. Explore some of the history and background. It, it opens it up. Take time to look. What's the proclamation? Don't just look for the predictions of the future. What's the proclamation that the prophet is telling Israel about their sin and where's their relevance to our world today? And then look for the heart of God there. Look and listen for the heart of God because God's heart hasn't changed. He's the same God today as he was 2,500 years plus in the past.